You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, Exodus 20 is where we're going to be today. So if you want to go ahead and grab a Bible and turn to Exodus 20, that would really be helpful. And it would be great if you'd have that out and open on your lap. We'd love for you to be looking at that so that you can know that we're not lying to you. So that out and open is a good thing for you. Exodus chapter 20. And while you're turning there, let me say two quick things. One, uh, thanks to Valentine. I don't know where Valentine is. I think he's in this service somewhere. Thanks for Valentine for preaching last week. If you were here last week, you're really blessed by Valentine. Did a great job last week in Ephesians 6. And so, yep, that's worthy of a little clap. So thanks to Valentine. And secondly, you see a lot of red shirts this morning. (laughs) Oh, man. Oh, man. So our students had Disciple Now this last weekend. And, I, you know, just a quick word to our students. We love you guys very much, and we're praying that this weekend would be one of those little moments in your life, one of those defining moments that sets the trajectory of the next few years, maybe the next few decades of your life. And so we're praying that those sort of things started and happened this weekend. And so uh, at the end of the service, you'll get to see a video that kind of puts into a, uh, a few minutes kind of what they did this weekend, and you're going to be amazed at how much they did in a weekend. It's crazy. So uh, Exodus chapter 20, we are starting a new set of sermons through the Ten Commandments. So we're going to spend the, this week and the next ten weeks uh, working through uh, this passage in Exodus chapter 20, 1 through 17. And before we jump into it, let me just give you a few reasons why I think it's important for us to spend time in the Ten Commandments. And here's the first reason. Reason number one is that the Ten Commandments have fallen on hard times. They're just not that big of a deal in our culture, even in our churches. So they've fallen on hard times in our culture, in our culture, even among our churches. And that's an ironic thing considering the history of the church. Um, in church history, uh, churches have typically been very proactive in training their people in what it means to know God and to love God. And especially new believers and, and children, they've been very proactive. The church has been very proactive in that. And a lot of how the church has done that in church history is through catechisms. Catechisms are simple questions and answers that deal with deep theology, puts it in mem- you know, memorizable chunks. And if you look at, you know, throughout the, the history of catechisms in church history, here's what you're going to find. That, that in church history, the catechisms focused on three areas. Area one is the Ten Commandments. Area two is the creeds that kind of make up much of our Christian history. And number three is the Lord's Prayer. Those three areas. And so if you're a part of the New City Catechism, you're using that. It's what we encourage all of our church family to use. If you're not doing that, then I'd encourage you to jump into that. It's a great way to be discipling your family. But you get a sense of that in the New City Catechism. Questions 8 through 12 all deal with the Ten Commandments. So you see that that is a central part of the teaching, the developing of Christians and what it means to know and love God. That's, That's an important part of it. But you just don't find that very often in our culture. You don't find teaching on, on this very often. And you know, thinking about what the catechisms do for us is it, is it puts it in those memorizable chunks where most people would have memorized. You go back a few centuries ago, most Christians would have memorized the Ten Commandments. And I'm just kind of carrying the assumption in this morning that if somebody would have slid a piece of paper in front of you and said, list all ten of the Ten Commandments this morning, that chances are a handful of us could have done that this morning. And listen, that's not for our benefit. That is to our loss. The Ten Commandments are important for you to know deep down in your soul. Listen to how J.I. Packer describes this. He is not a second-rate theologian. He's a first-rate theologian. Listen to how he talks about it. He says, Whether as persons we grow and blossom or shrink and shrivel, whether in character we become more like God and more like, or more like the devil, depends directly on whether we seek to live by what, uh, what is in the Ten Commandments or not. 
It is the commandments that crystallize the basic behavior pattern that brings satisfaction and contentment in the Christian life. And it's precisely for this way of living that God's grace rescues and refits us. So the Ten Commandments are that important. They're that important for you to know and for you to have a a growing sense of what they are. Here's the second reason. The Ten Commandments remind us that we live in a world with absolutes. And our culture hates absolutes. Hates it. In in their book, uh, The uh, The Day America Told the Truth, James Patterson and Peter Kim said this. This is what their research showed about American culture. Said, in spite of the fact that nearly all Americans say they believe in God. So almost everyone says that in America, we believe in God, right? So in spite of that, they go on to say this. The overwhelming majority of people, basically nine out of ten according to their research. So we believe in God, but yet even among those people, you know, nine out of ten said this. They said that, that they... And nobody else determined what is, right, what is and what is not moral in their lives. Now, Selah on that for a second. He's saying that nine out of ten people are looking at their life saying, there's no objective standards. It's what I think. That's what's right and wrong. He goes on to say they base their decisions on their own experience, even on their daily whims. We live in a culture that's rebelling against absolutes. The only absolute in our culture is a hatred for absolutes, Right? That's it. And to that prevailing kind of mood in our culture, the Ten Commandments remind us that, no, no, that's not true. There actually are rights and wrongs. In every time and in every place and among every group of people, there are some things that are always right and some things that are always wrong. The Ten Commandments remind us of that. And listen, that is a grace from God to us. That's a good thing that God has done to us in giving us the Ten Commandments. It's interesting, when C.S. Lewis is, is thinking about the Psalms, he wrote a book on the Psalms, when he's thinking about the Psalms, he, he stops over and pauses over this idea of the psalmist saying, I delight in the law of the Lord. And he, he's just asking the question, Man, how does the psalmist do that? That seems odd. He, he goes on to say that, I, I could imagine the psalmist saying, I endure the law of the Lord, I tolerate the law of the Lord, but to say I delight in it, That seems strange and ironic. And to explain that, he goes on to say this. He says, what kind of a delight is this? He says this. Their delight in the law is a delight in having touched firmness or absoluteness. Like the pedestrian's delight in feeling the hard road beneath his feet after a false shortcut has long entangled him in muddy fields. Now, I think that is exactly what the psalmist is getting after. So we live in a world where the prevailing mood is there's no absolutes. That means that we're all living in a world that we're kind of doing life in this soggy field where every foot is hard because nothing is solid. And God graces us with the Ten Commandments to give us a way out of that soggy field to say here is something hard. Here is something that you can walk on. Here's something you can do life on that will make your life better and easier. So that's a grace from God. The commandments show us that there are absolutes. And lastly, the Ten Commandments are widely known but are little understood. They're widely known, but not well understood. I'm coming into this set of sermons with the assumption that most of us have barely scratched the surface on what the Ten Commandments are and what the Ten Commandments are to do in the life of a believer. That most of us just barely scratched the surface on that. When I think about the Ten Commandments, here's the picture I would give you. I think the Ten Commandments are a gold mine in the Bible. And for most of us, we've scratched the surface just enough to get a little bit of gold out of it. But it's more like gold dust. And this set of sermons is going to give us a chance to bring out the heavy machinery, to set it up over this thing called the Ten Commandments, to drill down into the deep vein of gold 
called the Ten Commandments. It's going to give us a chance to do that over the next 10 or so weeks. So with that in mind, here's what I want to do this morning. I want to uh, kind of frame the Ten Commandments. I want to give you, uh, you know, before we kind of go in and deal with the actual commandments, to step out of the commandments, to deal with kind of the forest that is the context around it. So I want to give kind of three statements and kind of work through three different themes that, that relate to the law to give us the context to help us better understand what the commandments are and what the commandments are doing in the life of a believer. So with that in mind, let's start with this big theme, God and the law. Okay, this is the first thing I want to kind of work through, God and the law. Look at Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. This is where we're going to be this morning, these two verses. Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> and look how Exodus chapter 20, which gives the Ten Commandments in it, look at how it begins. Here are the first two verses in the chapter. And God. Now, before you do anything else, you might want to underline that, ver- that, that word, God. Second word in the chapter. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Now, it's just interesting that, the, that Exodus 20, giving the Ten Commandments, doesn't start with do this or don't do that. The, the Exodus 20, the giving of the Ten Commandments, starts like this. I'm God. The second word in the chapter is God. The most important thing we get out of Exodus 20 is not a list of do this and don't do that. The most important thing in Exodus 20 is the God who is speaking, the God who is giving the law. See, in a very real sense, the law always reveals the character of the lawgiver. And the most important thing for us to see in Exodus 20 is not God's law, but the character of the lawgiver the character of God himself. So I want to read through the commandments really briefly, and I want to give you a second to think about what do these commandments show us about God? What is each commandment revealing about God? What is it pointing at in the character and the heart of God? So let's just start with the first commandment. Look at verse three. Commandment number one says this, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, what is that saying about God? I mean, think about that. What what is that commandment? You shall have no other gods. What is that revealing about the heart of God, about the character of God? Here's a few things. It's revealing that God is unique, that there are a lot of counterfeit gods out there, but there is only one true God. He stands in a class by himself. It's saying that God is sovereign. He actually has the authority to look at us and say, love me supremely. Love me above and, and beyond everyone and everything else in your life. God can say that. That's the the character of God. He's he's unique and he's authoritative. He's sovereign. Look at the second commandment, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or or serve them. For For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, what is that commandment showing us, first of all? Like, what what is it saying? The commandment is saying, don't just worship God, like the right God, that's commandment one, but worship the right God in the right way, that's commandment two. It's getting at this idea that we all have a, a pension in us and a tendency in us to scale God down to what we can see and know and comprehend. To scale God down to a carved something that we can look at and say, oh, that's God. Let's worship him now. And so the the heart of this commandment, what it's showing us about God is that God's absolutely mind-blowing. That he does not fit in our mental categories. 
That God is beyond all of that. That the God of the Bible is absolutely uncomprehensible. Our only shot of comprehending God is looking at what he says about himself. Apart from him revealing himself, we would have no shot at it. That he is that mind-blowing in character and nature. Look at uh, commandment 3, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. That commandment is showing us that God is ultimately honorable. That you've never met a person, a being, you've never met one that is more deserving of respect and reverence and honor than God himself. You just never met that person that's more deserving of that. And it also shows us the justice of God in the thread at the end. That thread at the end is showing us that God is not to be trifled with. That God is for real. And he's a God of justice as well. Look at commandment 4, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now what is that telling us about God? I love what this tells us about God. It tells us that God is not a ruthless taskmaster, a.k.a. Pharaoh. He is not that. He is not a slave driver. That is not God. God's aim in your life is not to use you, but to bless you and to bring your life to flourish. That's what God is about for you. Isn't that a great thing to know about God? That God really wants your life to flourish. He doesn't just want to use you. See, this commandment is reminding us that we have a God who would look at us and say, you're not a human doing, you're a human being. It's a God like that who wants us to flourish. Look at command five. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. That's a command that's getting at authority and submission. And that is showing us behind all of our earthly, like, places where we're submitting to boss, to parents, to all of that, behind all of those things stands a a God who is our ultimate authority. It it is showing us that God at the end of the day is one that we will always answer to, the one that we always need to be submitted to. That's the God of the Bible. But it also shows us that he is a rewarder. Do you see that, the promise there? That that he loves to bless and and give great gifts to his sons and daughters. Look at command six, verse 13. You shall not murder. Now, what is that telling us about God? It's telling us that that behind this command is a God who is a life-giving God. I want you to look at me right in the eye. It is showing us that we have a God who actually cares about our life. Aren't you glad you've got a God like that who cares about your life? Look at the next command, command seven. You shall not commit adultery. In other words, you need to be faithful to your spouse, If you're single, to your future spouse. If you're married, to your current spouse. You need to be faithful to your spouse. That's the commandment. Now, what is God showing us about himself there? It is showing us that God is the ultimate spouse who is always faithful. He's always faithful to the covenant that he has made with us. There's never going to be a day where he walks out of the covenant that he has made with us. When he's thinking the church, his bride, the church, we can know, the church can bank on, God will always come through with the covenant that he has made with us. He's always going to be faithful to us. Look at command number eight and nine. Verse 15, you shall not steal. That's commandment number eight. Commandment nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. In other words, you should tell the truth. You you, you don't lie. What is that telling us about God? It's telling us that God is trustworthy. That what God says, he will do. That God doesn't lie. That God is not a taker. God is a giver to you. It's showing us that. It's showing us that when God looks at you and says, I'm going to do this for you, that we can bank on the fact that he's going to do it for us. It's showing us that. And then look at commandment 10, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything else that is your neighbor's. Now, what is that commandment telling us about God? Here's what it's telling us about God. Now, look at me here. That God is enough for you. 
that you don't need your neighbor's anything to have enough. That God is actually enough for you. Behind this command is the God that in John 6 says this, I am really the bread of life. If you come to me, you won't hunger. If you believe in me, you'll never thirst again. It's a God who's looking at you saying, do you know those deep cravings you have in your heart? Like you walked in this morning with deep cravings. Cravings for happiness, cravings for significance, cravings for security. Do you know those deep cravings? He's saying, if you'll come after me, I will, I will scratch, I will satisfy those deep cravings in you. But I alone can do that. He's saying, I am enough for you. So think about this. Behind all of these commandments stands a God. The commandments point to and reveal the character of that God, that he is good, that he is loving, that he cares for us, that he is sovereign, that he is unique, that he is dependable, that he is faithful, showing us all of those things about God. And the most important thing that we'll see in Exodus 20 is that God. The most important thing you can get out of Exodus 20 is the God who stands behind the commands. So this is God and the law. Here's the second kind of issue I want to wrestle through this morning is the purpose of the law. Like, why does God give us the law? Like, what is God doing with the law? What is the meaning of the law? Why does he give us things like the Ten Commandments? Why does he tell us to do anything in the Bible? Why is God doing that? Now, historically, in church history, there's been three reasons um, that are talked about in terms of why God gives the law. Let me just run through these these three reasons. I'm going to use three M words just to kind of help it make it a little more memorable for us. Three M words to describe the reasons for the law. Here's the first one. The law is a grace from God because it muzzles. It acts like a muzzle to restrain sin. Okay, this is one of the reasons that God has given the law. So knowing two things, one, that there is a law, like a right and wrong, and that if you do wrong, you'll be caught and punished for that. Knowing those two things keeps a lot of people from doing a lot of things they would otherwise do. So in this way, the law of God is a restraint. See, we ought to be very thankful that we live in a time and a place where there is law and there is enforcement. Amen? If there was no law and there's no enforcement, this room would get crazy in a hurry. If there's no law and there's no enforcement, your neighborhood would be crazy. If there's no law and there's no enforcement, Midlothian would go crazy. Knowing that there is law and there is enforcement keeps the lid on craziness. It has a way of restraining evil. If you just want proof of this, just throw about four, you know, fifth graders in a room for like five minutes and just see what happens with no supervision, right? Somebody's dying in that room. <laughs> see, this is what happens without the law, but the law muzzles. It restrains sin. Here's the second reason we have the law. The law is also a mirror. So it's not just a muzzle that restrains sin. It's also a mirror that reveals sin, that shows us sin. This is what Paul gets at in Romans chapter 7. In Romans 7, Paul says, listen, the law is a good thing. Don't be dissing the law. The law is not a bad thing. The law is a good thing. And here's why it's good. Because of the law, I became aware of the sin in me. There was a lot of sin that was happening in me that I was not aware of because I did not know the law of God. So in that way, it's a good thing. The law of God reveals who we are and what we really need. And that's a great thing. The law makes, it made Paul in Romans 7 face himself. And the law of God, like nothing else on this planet, will make you and I face ourselves. And that can be a terrifying thing, can it? But it makes us sit down and, and look at ourselves. It holds up a mirror and says, do you see who you really are and what you really need? Okay, now this is where, if we're not careful, our surface level understanding of the Ten Commandments can work against us. Do you remember the moment where the rich young ruler came up to Jesus and said, hey Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
And Jesus says, uh, well, why don't you keep these commandments? And he names some of the commandments. And the rich young ruler looks back and says, done, check, nailed them. And I would just imagine Jesus in that moment, just in his heart, just saying, you know, to himself, bless his little heart. Bless his heart. This guy is, this guy's gone crazy. He actually thinks he has kept the Ten Commandments. See, a surface level understanding of the Ten Commandments will lead you to thinking that you could actually keep them. But let me try to drill down and show you that the Ten Commandments are unkeepable ultimately. Okay, so let me kind of drill down into them a few, with, you know, with a few kind of ideas here. And let me kind of use the heading of rules of interpretation when it comes to the Ten Commandments. Like, how do you interpret the Ten Commandments? Let me give you three rules of interpretation. Here's rule number one. Rule number one is the inside-out rule. The inside-out rule is showing us that the Ten Commandments cannot be kept with external behavior. The Ten Commandments go all the way down to our heart. So let's just take Commandment 7 as a for instance. Commandment 7 is do not commit adultery. In other words, it's do not, like if you're married, do, do not, or if you're not married, do not have any sort of physical relations with anyone that is not your wife, right? That's an external behavior sort of an issue. And it would seem that that is as easy as just saying or, or doing, like not, not having relations with anybody other than your wife. But when you get to the New Testament, Jesus takes that same commandment, commandment 7, and he, he translates it for us. He interprets it for us, and he says this. Listen, it's not just about external behavior. He says, listen, here's how you keep the, that, that commandment, commandment 7. You can't look lustfully upon a woman. See, he's saying, listen, this is not a matter of external behavior. It is a matter of the heart. And if you're going to keep commandment 7, grace has to get all the way down into the depths of your soul and remake and rechange your heart. That's the only way you can keep the commandments. See, the inside-out rule is showing us that external behavior is not the goal of the commandments. A heart that has been changed and that that commandment seeps all the way down into the way we think and feel and operate deep down in our soul, that's how we keep the Ten Commandments. So the inside-out rule. Here's the second rule of interpretation. The two sides rule. Let's take commandment seven as a for instance. Uh, commandment seven is stated as a negative. Do not commit adultery. But just because it's stated as a negative doesn't mean you fulfill the commandment if you just keep away from doing the negative. It also has another side to it. It has a positive. So every, for every negative, command, you know, how the commandments are framed, there is a positive. So it's not just don't commit adultery. He's looking at husbands and wives and saying, no, you actually need to be proactive. Here's the other side. And love your wife. Pursue your husband. Like, you see your spouse? Run after that, la that lady that, that may, and care for them. Pursue them. See, that's how you fulfill commandment seven. It's not just by not doing something. It's by doing something, namely pursuing them and giving your life away in a million acts of sacrificial love. If you're single, the way you keep commandment seven is by picturing forth the God, that, you know, the, the spouse that you hope by God's grace you'll one day have and living now in such a way that would pursue and love them. See, there's, actually, there's this proactive side to it. So there's two sides, not just one. For every negative, there's a positive. This is why when Jesus is summing up the Ten Commandments, he says, love God and love your neighbor. It's a proactive pursuit. It's not just a, I won't harm them. It's a, I'm going to actively pursue them. So that's the two sides command. And this one is a real mind-blowing one. Rule number three is the rule of categories, of categories. The old Puritan, Jay used to call it um, species of sin. So for every, you know, every commandment is not just dealing with a particular sin, but a whole category or species of sins. So let me just give you a for instance of this. Let's just take commandment number nine as a for instance. 
Listen to the uh, Westminster Larger Catechism describe what is meant by keeping or what's forbidden in the ninth commandment. Okay, so this is just one commandment. Listen to what it says. Here's the question. What are the sins forbidden in the ninth commandment? Do not lie is the commandment. What, what, is, what does all of that entail? Listen to how it answers it. Now just sit back for a minute. This is going to take a while. Listen to what it says. The sins forbidden in the ninth commandment, do not lie, are all of these things. Disliking of the truth and the good name of your neighbor, as well as our own name. Giving false evidence, calling false witnesses, appearing and pleading for an evil cause, passing an unjust sentence, calling evil good and good evil, rewarding the wicked according to the work of the righteous and the righteous according to the work of the wicked, forgery, concealing the truth, undue silence in a just cause, and holding our peace when injustice calls for confrontation and complaint, speaking the truth at the wrong time or maliciously to a wrong end, or perverting the truth to a wrong meaning. Speaking untruth, lying, slandering, backbiting, gossiping, tail-bearing, scoffing, reviling, rash, harsh, and, and partial judging, misconstruing intentions, words, and actions, flattering, prideful boasting, thinking or speaking too highly or too lowly of ourselves or others, denying the gifts and the graces of God, aggravating smaller faults, hiding, excusing, or trivializing sins when called the free confession unnecessarily harping on the weaknesses of others, raising false rumors, receiving and continuing evil reports, and stopping our ears against just defense, envying or grieving at the deserved credit of any, uh, rejoicing in another's disgrace or infamy, breach of lawful promises, neglecting such things that are good and practicing ourselves or not hindering what we can in others, such things that earn an ill name. Wow. That's one commandment. You see how it's dealing with a whole species of sin, like a whole category of sin, not just one particular sin? Now let's just back up. In light of the Ten Commandments, in light of those rules of interpretation, and ask the question, what is the Ten Commandments trying to convince us of? What is it trying to show us? And here's the best way I could summarize it. The Ten Commandments are trying to, to punch through the assumption that most people live with. And here's the assumption that most of us live with. Most of us came in this room this morning with this assumption. You know, when, when everything kind of is settled, you know, the dust settles and the smoke clears, and one day I'm before God, at the end of the day, God's going to think I'm a pretty good guy. Now, my, my neighbor down the street, that dude's an idiot, but I'm a pretty decent guy. It's trying to bust through that myth and show us that our day in the courtroom of God, if we're depending on our good deeds, we're all doomed. That's what it's trying to show us. It's trying to lift our gaze above a comparison with our neighbor up to a comparison with God and his perfect requirements in his law. And it's trying to show us that when we're compared to God's perfect commands, we all fall woefully short. Like, like Paul, we start to realize, wow, there's sin everywhere in me. See, the Ten Commandments are trying to show us that. The Ten Commandments are trying to give you the one thing that you need if you're ever going to become a Christian. Do you know what that one thing is? Nothing. It's trying to give you that. See, we all want to bring something to God. Here's my good works. God, I'm a pretty decent guy. And if the Ten Commandments are showing us that before God, we bring nothing but our bad deeds. That's the only thing we bring is the sin that makes salvation necessary. See, that's what the law of God is meant to show us. It's meant to reveal that sin in us. It's meant to give us the one thing we need, namely nothing. 
It's trying to show us that before God, we are all doomed apart from grace. See, the Ten Commandments are trying to show us who we really are and what we really need, namely Jesus. The Ten Commandments, in the design of God, the Ten Commandments are meant and intended to drive us to humility, to to drive us down into the dust, even to the point of despair, the Ten Commandments are. The Ten Commandments are meant by God to get us to the end of ourselves, and here's why. When we finally get to the end of ourselves is when we finally get to our need for Jesus. And apart from getting to the end of ourselves, we'll never feel our need for Jesus. See, the the first thing we need if we're ever going to be rescued by Jesus is to be convinced that we're actually lost and in need of rescue. And the Ten Commandments are one of God's primary ways of convincing us that we're lost and in need of rescue, to drive us to Jesus where rescue can be found. Listen to how Martin Luther describes this. He says, therefore, we do not abolish the law, but we show its true function and use, namely, that it is a most useful servant impelling us to Christ. After the law has humbled us, terrified us and completely crushed us when it's completely crushed you so that you are on the brink of despair then see to it that you know how to use the law correctly for its function and use is not only to disclose the sin and the wrath of God but also to drive us to Christ that's what the law does it's this mirror that shows us who we are and shows us a perfect Jesus that we all really need I love how one old theologian said it He says, Moses has no other intention than to invite all men to go straight to Jesus. I mean, this is what I'm hoping for us in this set of sermons, that we would all become more acutely aware of what we really are, and we would become more acutely aware of all that Jesus is for us. And you know the amazing thing that happens when we become more aware of those two things? Is wonder and awe at the grace of God begins to explode in us. A deepened love of God begins to grow in us. That's law as the mirror. Now here's the third way that uh, in church history, the law of God, its purpose has been described. So you have muzzle, you have a mirror, and now you have a map. That the law of God is also a map to show Christians how to love God and how to love neighbor. It shows us that. It reveals. It it doesn't leave it to, to like chance. It doesn't leave it for you to figure out. It says, this is how you actually go about loving God and loving neighbor. Now, there's all sorts of debate in theological circles about how the law relates to a Christian's life. So on one side, there is a group that would say the law is absolutely done for. It, it is no more in the Christian life. We're done. It's, it's, we can just disregard that. Don't even need to read that. It's like, done, you know, done and gone. The other side says the law of God still has a purpose in our life. It, it shows us how to love God and, and love neighbor. Now, here's the thing. Although the two, the two camps look like on the surface they are a long way apart, when you get down to it, both sides agree. Everyone agrees that God tells us to do things. And God telling us to do things is not legalism. Legalism is depending on our doing of those things to make us right with God. That's legalism. But, but God telling us to do things is not legalism. God telling us to do things, and listen to this, it is a grace from God into our lives. God looking at us and saying, here are things you need to do and here are things you don't need to do. That is a grace from God. And let me give you two reasons why God telling us to do things is a grace. Here's reason number one. When God says don't do this or do that, the law of God, the Ten Commandments, the, all of that, when God is saying that, Those things line up with reality. 
that they are showing us our design, how God designed us to operate, and how the universe is wired to operate. See, they're getting us, they're showing us God's design. They're showing us God's wisdom and how he wired us and the world to function. That that's the purpose of the law. See, when, we, when most of us think about any laws out there, here, and, and in particular the law of God, we think of it in terms of a very arbitrary like set of rules. So it seems to us like this, that one day God is just kind of talking to himself, and it's like he's debating the speed limit. Should we make it 55 or should we make it 60? We'll just flip a coin. It landed on 55, so we'll go with that. That's how we perceive how God came up with laws. But that is the wrong way to look at the law. That's not how God uh, came up with his laws. God came up with his laws by wiring the world a certain way, and his laws now are showing that wiring. It's showing our design and the way the world works. Picture this in terms of a fish. Imagine a fish. And imagine a fish in a fish tank, and imagine there being a law written on the front of the fish tank for the fish to see that says, don't jump out of the tank. If you jump out, it's going to go bad for you. But imagine there being this moment where the fish decides, Heck with the law. I'm going to be my own law. I'm going to say what's right and wrong here. And imagine this moment. The fish kind of, he ramps himself up. He gets himself ready. And this is the day he's going to jump out of the tank. So, you know, stiff arming the law. Who cares about the law? He comes up. He jumps over the tank and he lands on the floor. Now, what happens to the fish? The fish dies, doesn't he? He flops around for a minute. He gasps for breath and then he dies. Now, that is that's a picture of what the law of God is meant to be for us. See, when, when that law on the front of the tank is saying, stay in the tank, it's showing the fish how he was designed, how the world was designed. He needs water to get air. He can't have pure, unadulterated air. To get oxygen, he needs water. That, that law is showing him that. And in the same way, the Ten Commandments are the law of God showing us that we were made to operate in a very particular way. And if we ignore that, it's to our peril. It does not go well for us. See, the first, the, the Ten Commandments come in two tables. Table one is the first four commandments. They show us what we were made for, that we were made to love God. And the, the first four commandments show us how to go about loving God. The second table, commands five through ten, show us that we were made to love people. And then the, the commandments six through ten, or five through ten, show us then how do we go about loving people. But they're showing, they're not arbitrary. They're showing you your design and the way God has wired and designed the world. So that's one thing we need to see when we think of the law, that it's a grace to show us reality, ultimate reality. But secondly, the law of God leads us to what is good. See, this is the reason that it is a grace from God, that it leads us to what is good. When most people think about the law, here's how they think about it. It's arbitrary, and it, it's restrictive. It, it, it's, it kind of like puts us in a straitjacket where we just can't have as much fun in life. I, I felt like in student ministry, by the way, this is to students. I felt like in student ministry, this was the main thing that I spent eight years trying to convince students of, that God is not out to rob your joy, but to promote your joy. To actually give you what your heart, the deepest aches of your heart are longing for. And the law of God is not God putting us in a straitjacket, restricting our joy. It is God saying, walk down this road and you're going to have your greatest joy. Let me give you a, a picture of this. A few weeks ago, uh, Caleb and, uh, and Hannah, our two oldest, were out in our front yard. They were riding bikes. Now, we have a rule at our house that goes like this when it comes to uh, bike riding. Our oldest two can ride out in our front yard, up and down the street, 
to the two stop signs that are on either end of our street. But the rule is, stay between the stop signs. You get out of the stop signs, we're going to have a big problem. You've got all the freedom in the world, just stay between the stop signs. So uh, they're out, they're riding, and I come out to uh, look for them, and they're nowhere to be found. And so I just set up shop. I grab a chair. I put it in the middle of our driveway right by the, uh, the back door to my truck. So I just sit there and I wait for them. I don't care how long it takes. This is like, you know those moments as a parent when you're like, you've got to win some battles? This is one of those. So this is one I'm winning. I don't care how long it takes. I'm waiting for them. Eventually they make the loop. They come back around and, uh, I mean, they're giggling. They're having fun. It's all that. And I say, uh, hey, God, where have you been? And they said, uh, well, we, we went around the neighborhood, like, uh, around the loop. And I said, uh, don't, don't we have a rule that says, like, stop sign to stop sign? And Caleb responded back, and he said, uh, yes, but, and before he could get but out of his mouth, I grabbed him, just jerked him off of his bike, opened the back door of my truck, threw him in the back door of the truck, and closed the door on him. And I left him in there for like 20 seconds. I open the door again, and he's just wide-eyed. He doesn't know what's gone down. I grab Caleb out of the truck. I set him down. I put Hannah right beside him. I bent down like this, and we had this conversation. Hannah and Caleb, let me give you the why behind the rule. There are a lot of bad people in this world, and some bad people would love to kidnap little boys and little girls just like you. And this rule is to help you not get kidnapped. And so if you obey this rule, here's what will happen. You'll always be where daddy can see you. And here's the thing, Caleb, uh, could, could you have fought against me? Because his first kind of response was, but I'd kick him. Could, could you have fought against me? No, you couldn't. You're not big enough and strong enough to fight for yourself yet. But here's the thing. If a bad person pulls up on our street and I see them and you're riding on this street, here's what's going to happen. Daddy will meet them there. And before they throw you in the car, they're going to have to throw me in the car. So see, this isn't like a let's restrict your freedom. This is like, I don't want you to get kidnapped. I want your life to actually flourish, and it's not going to flourish in the back of someone's van. That's not where it's going to flourish. And if you get thrown in the back of their car, it's not going to be near as enjoyable as my pickup was. Now, do you see what's happening there? See, this is God's law to us. See, his laws are not meant to restrict our freedom his laws are meant to be boundaries in our life to show us where freedom is, to show us where a life that can actually flourish and you can be free, where that life is. The laws of God function as like planks, function as a fence to our life to show us if we really want to flourish, here's the road we need to walk on to flourish. It's showing us that. I love how J.I. Packer expresses this. He says, God's parental law expresses his parental love. That's what the law of God is doing. It's an expression of his parental love. That night, I loved it. it uh, Caleb, he, uh, he, he's a, a real sensitive one. So he's talked about kidnapping like for two weeks straight now. <laughs> but, but that night, he said, he looked at me. Um, we were, I was putting him in bed. And he looked at me and said, Daddy, I don't want to be kidnapped. <laughs> and I'm like, Buddy, I don't want you to be kidnapped either. That's why we say stop sign to stop sign. See, this is the law of God. It's looking at us saying, if you want to flourish, here's the road to walk on to flourish. Now, let me end with this and we'll be done. The gospel and the law. Gospel and law. 
There is a myth that I think, from what I can tell, I think most people kind of live thinking that this is true. This myth is, is actually true. And the myth goes like this, that in the New Testament, we are saved by faith in Jesus. But in the Old Testament, Old Testament people were saved by keeping the law. Okay, now look at me here. That is a myth. That is not the way salvation has ever worked. Salvation has always been by grace through faith in Jesus, never by something different than that. In the Old Testament, it was looking forward to the promised Jesus. In the New Testament, it's looking back at a Jesus who lived, died, and rose again. But it's always been by faith in Jesus. See, that way of looking at the law, like if I keep the law, then, then I'll be saved, that's not just a, a different way of relating to the law. That's a different way of relating to God. And that way of relating to God is how a lot of people want to relate to God. And here's the problem with it. It's just not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity has always been, will always be, salvation through grace, you know, by faith in Jesus. That's the, the way we have always been saved. And in both Testaments, the law and the gospel have always worked together for salvation. They've always complemented one another. So look at this in Exodus chapter 20, and we'll be done here. But look at how it shows us this in Exodus 20. Verses 1 and 2. Let me read these for you one more time. And I want you to pay attention to the context. Before any law is given, what God has already done for his people. Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who did what? Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. See, the Ten Commandments show up in Exodus 20. God says, here's what I want you to do. But that is after Exodus 1 through 19 has already happened. Now, what happened in Exodus 1 through 19? God has done something. Namely, he has rescued, delivered, saved, and redeemed the people of Israel. See, it's God's doing that now makes, you know, it's what God has done that now makes the doing that he is asking possible. It's always been like that. God never comes to us and says, do this so you can earn a right relationship with me. It has always been God saying, I have done this for you. I have set you free. And then he comes and shows us what a free life now looks like. That's the Ten Commandments. Here's what it looks like to live free. But I have done something, God is saying, now enables our doing of something. It's never, the, it's never switched. It's never our doing that, that earns us rightness. It's God has done something that has made us right with God. Now we are forgiven. Now we are adopted into the family of God. Now the Spirit of God lives in us, empowering a new way of living. And now God says, here's what you can do as a free human being. This is what it means to live free. Ten Commandments. So here's you know, a false dichotomy that I think a lot of people wrestle with and struggle through. The, the dichotomy goes like this. That the law of God and the love of God, the gospel, grace of God, are opposed to one another. And they're not opposed to one another. They just do different things. But they're not opposed. They complement one another. The law is a guide, but the law, listen to this, cannot give. The, the love of God gives, but it doesn't guide. But the two work together to both, you know, the law and love of God to both give and to guide us. So let's just play this out. Think about this illustration with a train. So picture yourself as a train. 
For the train to go anywhere, to do anything, it needs an engine to propel it forward. That is the love, grace, gospel of God. It is the engine inside of us, changes our heart to give us new desires to follow after God. The law of God now comes, and it's the track. It shows us what a love of God and what a love of other people look like. The tracks, the law of God, get us to the right destination. It doesn't leave it to guesswork what loving God and loving our neighbor looks like. It shows us what it looks like. But the two work together. We need the propulsion of the gospel, and we need the tracks to guide us of the law. We need both of those. They work together to show us what a life of loving and glorifying God actually look like. Now, let me just put it in a, in a last illustration here, and we'll, uh, we'll call it quits. I've used this illustration several times before, but I think it just does a great job of summarizing how law and gospel go together. Um, there, there was this story told of a, of a northerner. This was back in Civil War days before, um, you know, slavery ended. Uh, There's this story told of a northerner who came down into a slave auction into the south, and he bought a, a young girl that was a slave in the south. They leave the auction. They, they finally get back to the north, and he looks at this young lady and says, here's the thing. You're free. You're free. And, and the young woman looks at, at the guy who had just bought her and says, you, you mean I'm free to do anything I want to do? And he looks back and says, yeah, you're free to do anything you want to do. You mean I'm free to be anything I want to be? He says, yeah, you're free to be anything you want to be. You mean I'm free to say anything I want to say? No way. He looks back and says, yeah, you're, you're free to say anything you want to say. She looks back and says, you mean I'm free to go anywhere I want to go? And he says, yes, you're free to go anywhere you want to go. And she looks back and says, well, then I'll go with you. Now, that is what the gospel of Jesus Christ does for us. It puts in us a radically new, changed and transformed heart that looks at God and says, God, I could do anything, but I want to go with you. I have been saved by free, sheer, and utter grace, but God, I, I want to go with you. I'm in with you. And then the law of God is laid down beside that to show us where God is taking us, to show us what it means to love God and to live for God and to love our neighbor and to give our life away in a million sacrificial acts of love to our neighbor. And here's what I'm praying for us, is that God would help us see both of those clearly over this set of sermons. Amen? Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.